countless enclaves of Central America and the Caribbean and is available on SoundCloud, iTunes Podcast, and Google Play Music. The Latino Media Collective is recorded in WPFW Studios and airs Fridays at 1 p.m. on WPFW Washington. Welcome to On the Margin with E. Ethelbert Miller. My guest today is Chuck Collins. Chuck Collins is the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies. His most recent book is the novel Alter to an Erupting Sun, which was published last year by Green Writers Press, located in Bratboro, Vermont. How are you doing today, uh, Chuck? Good morning. Good to be with you, Ethelbert. Haven't seen you in a long time. <laughs> it's great to be with you. <laughs> you know. Um, you know, before we talk about the novel, I want to talk about um, some of the things that you might be doing right now, because I know you are a very, very busy man. So what are, some <laughs> of the, what, are, what are some of the issues that you're dealing with right now, especially because this is election year for president? Yes. Yeah. Well, we we at the Institute for Policy Studies, we continue to look at the issues of, uh, of how billionaires are disrupting our society, uh, both in terms of throwing their weight around in terms of politics uh, but also just shaping our housing policy and driving up the cost of housing and uh, affecting the environment. Um, we actually have a project looking at the impact of private jets and the growing, you know, as as wealth concentrates in fewer hands, a lot of these billionaires and multimillionaires want to have a private jet, which is a, a huge burner of emissions uh, and uh, so some in some parts of the country, they want to expand private jet airports, triple their capacity to accommodate private jets. So we're involved in that. That's kind of like the intersection of uh, wealth inequality and, and climate disruption. Um, yeah, and we continue to look at issues like the racial wealth divide, uh, what we can do about that, um, and very focused this year on housing. It just seems like a lot of our communities are facing acute crisis in housing. And it's a place where we can do something. We can tax real estate transfers. We've actually been trying to learn from your experience in Washington, D.C. about having a sort of tenant first option to buy law and spreading that idea around the country. So with all of this, Chuck, how do you find time to write a novel? I, I was surprised when when this book came out last year. I said, "Oh, Chuck is writing a, wrote a novel. Uh, when did he? When did you find time to do that?" And then also, I was wondering, in terms of this book, uh, "All to the Erupting Sun," how much did you draw upon your own life experiences? Well, first, I should say it was a real pleasure to write a novel. It, I, I, it's not something I set out to do. I don't think of myself as a fiction writer, um, but I had a story that I wanted to tell and I had some characters that I wanted to develop and I had kind of a, a a future vision, if you will, there's an element of the novel that looks into the future. Um, so it was easy. It actually flowed out. And of course I didn't have to do any footnotes or data research. I had to do some historical research, but, um, and in terms of your question, yeah, the, the book is an altar, it, you know, in the title, the altar to an erupting sun, it is kind of like a, a remembrance altar, an altar where you celebrate the lives, and in this case, the social movements that formed my characters. And so there are some real people and some real life experiences. I mean, all we have is our life experience, obviously. So I drew on that, but I drew on some of my elders' experiences and tried to weave them in and honor them and, and in a sense, put them on the altar um, and lift up their stories. So there's some true stories woven in with a lot of fictional writing. And, uh, it was, it was an act of, uh, remembrance for me. Well, you did, a, you did an excellent job, Chuck. I, I really enjoyed reading this book. Um, in several places though, I, I felt I was reading like a manual for activists and not just a novel. Um, you even conclude, you even include a, um, reading list in the back of the book. So my question is, who did you write this book for and how would you like to see it be used? Well, you know, all I've ever known is writing nonfiction activist books. So, uh, but in this case, I, um, I, I was writing both to honor lifelong activists. There's a, there's a, you know, we, we talk a lot about representation in fiction, who's depicted, whose stories are there or not there. I wanted to include the stories of people who, 
were lifelong activists, people like you, people like Juanita Nelson, people who, you know, decades of engagement. And I think I was also writing for um, my daughter's age, people in their 20s who are interested in social change, how to face the future, how to face a potentially disrupted future from climate change and inequality, and to tell the stories of some of these social movements and how they formed us uh, as an offering to how change happens. Um, so yeah, I had multiple audiences in mind, um, but uh, you know, I also I, I think my hope is, and yeah, you're right. There's a reading list. There's on my website. There's a link to what were the actual historical events that happened. If people are interested, so yeah, I hope people. I, I don't know about you, Ethelbert, but when I read a really good historical novel or a fiction that opens a door, I, I'm, it, it makes me curious about the history and what happened and sort of a gateway into learning about something. Mm. Well, so talking, about, this... talking about gateway, and, and you mentioned this a few minutes ago about the, the altar. Um, I was wondering whether you have a personal altar in your home, because there is this spiritual side to Chuck Collins that I don't know if people you know, really are aware of, but you, know, you have a very strong spiritual side. And I was wondering whether you have an actual altar. I do. I do. I have a kind of personal private altar uh, where I'm thinking about people, maybe people who've passed to the other side in the last year or two, uh, or my parents or ancestors. And then we also in our home have a public altar, uh, particularly around Day of the Dead or Samhain in the, in the Celtic Irish tradition, where you're sort of welcoming your neighbors and friends to also see who's on your altar. And that's less of an active grieving altar. Uh, it's more of a commemorative altar. So, and yeah. And the main character of my novel, a woman named Ray Kelleher, she is an altar builder. Uh, and she learns uh, that almost all cultures have remembrance altars, ancestor okay, well, altars. Let's, let's, I'm glad you're bringing it up. Let's, let's um, talk about your main character, Ray, but also I don't want people to like, I don't want you to give away the whole plot of the book, but just talk about who Ray is and, and how you develop her. And is she based on an actual person that you knew? Yeah, Ray Kelleher, uh, who is the main character, there's sort of three main characters, but she is kind of a, uh, people have told me they find her a compelling character. She's kind of the life of the party. She remembers your birthday. She uh, brings wigs and silly hats to the party. You know, she she's kind of the a lively person. She's a lifelong activist, grew up kind of white working class, Southern Ohio, um, dropped out of college because she just didn't make sense for her to be sitting there in 1973 with the Vietnam War and the coup in Chile and things like that. So she's restless and impatient. Um, it's not by the way, I don't, it's not at all a spoiler alert to say the book starts, you know, Ray Kelleher at the end of her life, a life devoted to nonviolence, uh, engages in a shocking act. And this and is she's how she's also book... dealing with terminal cancer, too. Yeah, she's facing down. She doesn't have long to live. She's at the end of her life. And uh, she is somebody who is a death doula. She thinks about helping people live intentional lives at the end of their lives, not kind of over-medicalizing the process of death and that sort of thing. So, But she decides to take her own life and the life of a CEO of a fossil fuel company who she believes is personally responsible for delaying society's response to climate change. That's, you know, the first four pages of the book. That's not a secret. Uh, it's sort of provocative and it, and it sets, sets up the question of why did she do this and what impact did it have um, but, you know, in terms of her character, it's a little bit out of character because she's devoted her whole life to militant and sometimes radical direct action and social change and nonviolent civil disobedience. And But she's never uh, advocated violence. Mm -hmm. So for her to go out that way is, is you know, raises this question, why? Why would she do that? Mm -hmm. um, well, you give her, you give Ray a, what I call a moral compass. How does that contrast with her brother, Toby? Well, she, yeah, she has a brother, who, an older brother who she grew up with in South, Southern Ohio, who's very, very different, just never left home. Uh, and they argue continuously. And as, an, as adults, they, um, they get into lots of political conflicts, like a lot of families today. There's, you know, 
people with different views in the family. What's powerful about this, I hope, is that Ray stays connected to her brother, even though he's a headache sometimes, even though it's conflictive. And part of that is her memory that her brother really was the one who taught her love of the natural world, took her out into the woods, taught her about mushrooms and animals. Um, and so later in life, when he accuses her, hey, you're like a tree hugger, you're you're like an environmentalist, she says, well, you're the one who taught me. And uh, so, yeah, they, they, they're very different. They That's one of the conflicts through the story. You know, when you when you say that, Chuck, you know, and you talk about within the same family, these differences, it seems that that really captures our country today, because we know in certain families right now, somebody wants, you know, support Trump, someone support Biden, you know, the same way people were divided over Obama when he was running. Uh, And so all of a sudden you realize that these political issues are also personal issues. But then then it gets back to you as a as a novelist now. Um, Do you want to? just present these issues in terms of this content, or do you want to resolve them? Well, some some things can't be resolved easily, but in, in the case of Ray and her brother, Toby, um, I think the most important thing is that she just maintains a connection when when her uh, Ray's husband, Reggie, says, well, it seems like he's, he's swallowed the soup. He just is spouting Fox News talking points. Ray says, well, that's what he thinks about me, too. He thinks I'm just spouting some some ideology. So she kind of maintains a an empathy toward him and a love toward him, even when he's a headache or when they conflict have open conflict. And uh, I think that maybe is the lesson is we just need to try to stay in relationship with one another, even when it's hard. Mm. Well, you know, um, I'm reading your book and I felt that the core of your novel, the core of your novel is when you write about Ray your main character, carrying around a copy of The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who was Bonhoeffer and how are his ideas key to understanding the altar to an erupting sun? Yeah, Ray, uh, Ray is somebody who is goes on these learning binges. She, she, she drops out of college, but she is a co- commensurate learner. She's like you, Ethelbert. She just she <laughs> yeah, wants to learn it. something. <laughs> right. She just does the deep dive. She reads the fiction, the nonfiction, the documentary. She talks to everybody. And I think that's a great quality in people. Um, and in this case, she she learns about the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer by reading a novel, uh, a fictionalized version of his life. And Bonhoeffer's a German theologian, uh, very early on became a pacifist, uh, opposed to World War I, uh, and then watches the rise of Hitler and very early on leads the independent German church, the non-Nazi aligned church movement. And then later in his life participates in a unsuccessful plot to assassinate Hitler and uh, is caught, captured in prison and later executed for that. And Ray is very aware of, of, of Bonhoeffer. And, and, and in a sense, she believes we are in a Bonhoeffer moment in the fight to save the earth. Uh, that even though like like Bonhoeffer, she's a lifelong nonviolent advocate, she believes that the fossil fuel industry leaders, individuals within the fossil fuel industry should be held to account. Well, let's look at that. If, yeah. if it seems if, if you took Bonhoeffer out of your novel, it seems that something philosophically is missing. So it was, I mean, when you developed, when you started writing your book, were you first beginning with Bonhoeffer's ideas or were you beginning with the character and then going into Bonhoeffer? Well, it was, um, you know, I wanted to have a a fictional character who was shaped or influenced by Bonhoeffer. Uh, interesting aside, Ethelbert, mm-hmm. uh, we, we've all probably seen the, the, the movie about Robert Oppenheimer that came out this year, which kind of focused attention. This summer, there's going to be a biopic on the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. So people are going to start to learn more about the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer and the witness of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And he, he is unusual uh, in that he, you know, believed that uh, in this case, violence was necessary uh, to stop a tyrant. That's really what he that led him to take that action. So I wanted to imagine a contemporary character grappling in the same way that Bonhoeffer was. And I, I personally, I don't think we're quite at the Bonhoeffer moment. I can say that, you know, 
I'm not an advocate of violence or assassination in this context, but well, well, let's, let's a, hold that point. You, you, you okay. may, you may not be an advocate, but you know, if we look at the New York Times Sunday Magazine of January twenty first, twenty twenty four, there is an interview with Andres Mob, who is the author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, uh, in. On page 261 in your novel, there's a reference to um, Andrea's mom. And, you know, he basically feels that, you know, um, people who deal with climate change are not being radical enough. Abs yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think that what mom and, and, and my novel essentially say is I think we are about to witness, let's call it an escalation of tactics that it, that our political system is incapable of responding right now to the to the depth of the environmental and ecological crisis, along with a few other crises, and that uh, we're going to have to change our tactics. And so, and actually, I think we're seeing more people engaged in disruptive action, more people getting arrested, blocking pipelines. Well, well, let's go, well, hold, hold that point and let's okay. go back. Because I, 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 I think it's somebody like Bill Ayers, okay? <laughs> you, know, you know, it seems that there's a point where like people like in SDS reach the same point, like, okay, well, you know, how are we going to deal with the war and the things of that sort? And let's put a little bomb at the Pentagon. <laughs> am, I, am I missing something here, Chuck? No, no, I think that that's, you know, I mean, for... Ray, my fictional character, Ray, that is the moment we're in. Mm -hmm. um, and, a, and she's aware of all the other options there are. You know, for instance, she learns a lot about Norman Morrison, who is a Quaker who self-emulated himself outside the Pentagon in 1965, right outside Defense Secretary Robert McNamara's window. Mm -hmm. A very radical action. He took his own life. He set himself on fire in the spirit of the Vietnamese monks who were opposed to the right. Vietnamese war. Now, some people would say, well, that crossed the line. That was, that's crazy or that's, but Ray understood that. She understood that there were self-sacrificing witnesses as part of nonviolence. And actually there's a man named Wynn Bruce who a couple years ago took his life self-emulated at the Supreme court over climate change issues. It was not well publicized, but I think we're going to see more of those types of witnesses. Um, how, do you, how do you resolve that you know, um, personally, um, Chuck? I mean, in, in terms of how do you feel about that? Well, I, I think we're in an, we are in an urgent moment. Um, and I think what in, in, and I've heard a number of people say, if I were facing a terminal illness, if I knew I only had months to live, I might do X, Y, or Z. So I think that there's a that's, like a, that's, a, that's a different type of bucket list, right? <laughs> very different bucket list. Yeah, um, you know, you may have seen Bill McKibben and Akaya Winwood started this group called Third Act, hmm. which uh, is you know the idea that your your you know your your last third of your life. They don't use those words last third in, in Mexican culture. They have this concept of the tercera edad. It's your last third. You know, in the sport, in sports, it's, it's your last quarter. You know? Yeah, it's your extra innings. <laughs> right. You know, uh, as you would say, you're, you're you're in the ninth inning. Maybe right. you get an extra inning. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but 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 uh, that's that. People are more in other cultures face death a little bit more directly than than we do. Mm -hmm. I like to I like to say that uh, Ray's their third act, but Ray's Ray's organizing the last act uh, uh, group, and uh, so for her last act, she's engaged in this um, provocative mm -hmm. action. Other people may choose to bear witness in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, and actually in the book, after Ray does her shocking action, there's a fair amount of blowback from that. But what happens is six grandmothers form a group called <laughs> the Good Ancestors. They too are facing terminal illness and they kind of do a Norman Morrison. They, they set themselves on fire in the lobby of ExxonMobil. And that's right. actually what wakes the culture up. Right. Not an well, act of murder, but right. an act of sacrifice. Okay. Now, although your novel begins, as you mentioned, it's in 2023 and ends in 2030, you said, you know, looks ahead. Um, the book is actually about Ray navigating what I would call the motion of history between 1973 to 2023. How did you, how did you develop the structure of the book? And were there historical events that you decided not to include in the book? 
That's a great question. I mean, um, as, as somebody who knows their uh, sort of theology, I like to, there's sections of the book, one is called discipleship, mm. uh, and then there's accompaniment. Yeah, and, you, and you have quotes to go along with these things. Yeah, and I would say that this is a formation story. And it's, you know, how are each of us formed? What are the forces of history and people and elders? And who? what forms us? And in Ray's case, uh, you know, she was formed by social movements, the, the U.S. movement uh, against U.S. intervention in Central America. So she was shaped by that. She was shaped by the movement to oppose nuclear power. On a local level, she was shaped by the displacement and evictions uh, coming out of, you know, 2008, 2009, and working on sort of racial justice issues in Boston. So, you know, there are more, there were obviously other historical forces at work, but they didn't touch her life in the same way. So it was somewhat of a decision to say, well, here's one person's life, 40 years of activist life, here are the forces that touch them. Um, but, you know, she is somebody of her culture, she raised in a white working class family. So she's not active. She didn't grow up in the civil rights movement in the way that that may have shaped other people. But some of her elders were. So she kind of indirectly experiences movements as well through her elders. Okay. You mentioned the movements um, and you mentioned about nuclear power. Um Let's look at 1977, and and she participates in the opposition to the Seabrook Station nuclear power plant. What is your position, Chuck, on nuclear energy? Well, um, you know, I think that nuclear power uh, has this fundamental problem, which is what to do with the waste uh, and how are like, we going like, to like, have a, like Fukushima? Yeah, and how are you going to have a society that's going to be able to secure waste for thousands of years? Are we going to have the social stability and resources as a society to mine the uh, the radioactive radioactive material? So, um, you know, now I think in the face of climate change, people are rethinking nuclear power. Are there ways to create safer, uh, low scale operating nuclear power plants? But in in the nineteen seventies, you know, Richard Nixon and company were planning to build two hundred and fifty new nuclear power plants, new coal plants. There was a whole push to expand the atom, the peaceful atom, if you will. Um, I think it's still a bad idea. I think we need to kind of figure out other ways to power our our society and and, and use less energy generally. Um, and 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 what was formative there was that Ray learned about nonviolent direct action. She, you know, there was a whole movement to try to stop the construction of these nuclear power plants. And she learned an important lesson, which is, you know, you might be organizing for a while and you might not feel like you're succeeding. Um, you're doing door knocking and education work and you're tabling. And then all of a sudden, Three Mile Island happened, a nuclear power accident. And boom, they were organized and things took off. And I think she learned a lesson, which is sometimes you toil without results. And then all your preparation work pays off mm -hmm. in that you are ready for a dramatic event. Well, and I think that's just, true for a lot of social movements. Right. Well, let's take go back to to Andreas Mall, and you know you mentioned Three Mile Island, which was an accident. But we also live in a world that's changed, where you would say, okay, um, not halting the building of a nuclear plant, but attacking a a plant that's there, creating a sort of crisis in terms of you know the danger that you know somebody would say as a result of terrorism. It just seems that the world has changed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, the the Andres Malm, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, has been made into a dramatic film, which I recommend to your listeners. It's it's a good story. It's well done. It tells the story of uh, eight young people, all with very different backstories, who come together to engage in an act of, of sabotage. Mm -hmm. And Malm's point is, hey, why is it that at this stage, we're, there's less, there's no sabotage? Why aren't people, you know, all these pipelines, we, we know we shouldn't be building new fossil fuel infrastructure. We know we shouldn't be building new pipelines for gas and coal and oil and uh, to transport fossil fuels. We should just stop and transition rapidly to cleaner energy. Um, and his point is, why are we so, why do we, why is property so sacrosanct that we're not thinking about stopping these harmful 
infrastructure projects. So that's that's his provocation to our current political moment. Mm-hmm. You know, your novel seems to promote um, alternative living communities. Um, Reggie Ray's partner says in, in in your in your novel, the future is rural. You know, now I'm I'm from the South Bronx. <laughs> Explain that to me that the future is rural. <laughs> yes. So this is so so part of part of the book is to engage in the conversation you and I are having, sort of about tactics. But I actually think part of how we face a disrupted future is we have to think about well, who are our neighbors? What kind of community we build? What kind of mutual aid? And some of us have that in a larger sense of kinship and neighborhood. But a lot of people live with a high level of isolation uh, and don't really have people they can depend on. And so part of the story here, the fiction, if you will, is to imagine people forming back to the land movements. Mm-hmm. And you've heard about black land back and people getting access to land and reparations and uh, people forming rural communes and eco villages. There's a little bit of that depicted in in my novel because I think cities are 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 in for a tough, tough future for a number of reasons. One, a lot of cities are import 98% of their calories. They're dependent on forces outside their city for food and energy and access to water and natural resources. And a lot of cities are not resilient yet in terms of facing climate disruption. I mean, think about the power goes off for three days. How's, How's it going there, you know? Uh, we we know uh, that a lot of our communities are very vulnerable to having three days of disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, so so part of what yeah Reggie says is yeah the future is rural in the sense that we need to live a little closer to our food systems. We need to produce more of our calories. We need to be a little more rooted on the land. Um, now the good news is a lot of cities are figuring out how to become more resilient, how to grow more food how to be more self-sufficient in energy. Um, so that's a, that's a, but that's an interesting debate or conversation to have how much, you know, if, if you grew up in the city, it's very hard to imagine moving back to, well, you know, you, you mentioned Chuck Collins, you, you mentioned, you know, um, these economic reasons and things of that sort. Well, we know that when we think of some of these alternative communities, you know, they're, they're pushed by uh, ideology. You know, where, you know, right wing groups are moving to Idaho. I remember at one time women who were lesbian going to like Oregon, you know, so there were other things that were driving people and not just the economics and the fact that I want to have, you know, fresh vegetables. Yeah, there was a there was a, you know, the back to the land movement that uh, the 1960s and 70s was about getting away from the harmful parts of society and creating little mini utopias. But that sounds like that sounds like that last, you know. that many of which did not last very long. <laughs> but that sounds like when you say it, it's like, well, we're going to get away from the 13 colonies, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Once they figured out, either the, usually it was either the first winter or the first failed food crop that got people to rethink their rural utopia. But, um, but actually, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a late in life back to the lander. So I, you know, grew up city kid, Detroit, Boston, but now in my fifties moved, you know, back to uh, to Vermont, and I live on a farm, and I participate in growing food. So I, there's a little bit of that is biographical in that trying to make sense of rural living, and uh, and there's a whole black land back movement right. in our region, which is right. interesting. You know? right. So people are trying to figure all this out. Right. Well, let's take a little break, Chuck Collins, and then we'll. Uh have some more questions to talk to you about. My guest today is Chuck Collins. He, we're talking about his novel, Alter to Erupting Sun, which was published last year by Green Writers Press, located in Brattleboro, Vermont. My name is Ethel Brett Miller. This program's On the Margin. The station's WPFW 89.3 FM. Peace. Brother Jamil here informing you about the D.C. Black History Celebration Committee's annual Black History Month kickoff on Saturday, February 3rd from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. at Westminster, D.C.'s Jazz Church. The keynote speaker is none other than Professor Tom Porter on the role of black artists in the movement for justice and peace. For details, 
call Chuck Hicks at 202-421-8608. That's 202-421-8608. Or email History at yahoo.com. The event is free and open to the public. Westminster Church is located at 400 I Street Southwest in D.C. Again, the date is Saturday, February 3rd from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Okay, we're back on the margin with my guest, Chuck Collins, who's the author of Altar to Erupting Sun. Um, Chuck, talk about two real people that appear in your book. Um, that's Juanita and Wally Nelson. Talk about them. We were talking about the alternative communities just before. Yeah, Wally and Juanita Nelson are, are real people. And in the fictional book, they are elders to to my main character, Ray Kelleher. Um they're interesting folks. They were very involved in, in uh, Congress on Racial Equality, CORE. If you walk into the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, there's a big photo of a group of uh, freedom riders getting on a bus, and one of them is Wally Nielsen. Um, so they were active in the Civil Rights Movement, but then they they decided to go back to the land. They, they became subsistence farmers and war tax resistors. Uh, and they believed that, you know, if you don't like war, then why do you pay for it? And they work to live at a subsistence level. And they had a huge impact. They lived in Deerfield, Massachusetts and Western Massachusetts. They sort of had a huge impact on that region. Uh, they shaped a whole generation of people around activism. Uh, they started a farmer's market back, you know, before farmer's markets were so hip. And they um, taught a lot of people about living simply so other people could simply live. And Juanita was a very, she was a journalist and a writer, and um, we just celebrated her, uh, what would have been her 100th birthday last summer with a commemorative con- conference. But yeah, people, part of it is I wanted people to know who are Wally and Juanita Nelson, what was their history, what was their contribution to kind of thinking about change. Um, and they 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 were part of... Uh, you know, conversations with Ray helped her sort of think about her own life. Um, and I should say they were very influential in my own life. Uh, they, they didn't believe in usury. They didn't believe in, in uh, interest. And so they were looking, they were very radical in the sense that they were looking at the driving root causes of, of violence and saying, look, it's not enough just to say you oppose war. You need to look at the seeds of war in your own life. Hmm. Talk about that. Who, who, who were the influences on Juanita and Wally Nelson? I mean, who influenced them? You mentioned them being the civil rights movement. Was there anybody within the civil rights movement that they were, you know, influenced by? Well, they were very involved early on in SNCC and and CORE. Okay. So they, and there was a group called the Peacemakers. I think that they were co-founders of. Hmm. Um, yeah, they they knew Baird Rustin. They knew you know some of the uh, luminaries of our time, and and. Uh, and but they, you know, Juanita was always pulling quotes out of thin air, you know, uh, John Ruskin and uh, Gandhi, and she knew her Tolstoy. She 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 was, you know, all the things that all the things Martin Luther King read about nonviolence from Gandhi and and Tolstoy. She was also reading the same texts and thinking about those things. There's probably a little Howard Thurman thrown in there. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, um, another person, you, you mentioned SNCC, and I was thinking of a person who, you know, wrote a book about SNCC who appears, you mentioned his name a couple of times uh, in, in your book, and that's Howard Zinn. Um, talk about his influence on your writing and um, and thinking. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, before Howard Zinn wrote The People's History of America, which became a very popular book, uh, he was, you know, professor at Boston University, outspoken. And what was striking to some of us as young people was he showed up at these demonstrations. He spoke at anti-war demonstrations. He, you know, in 1977 at Seabrook, where there's a literally an occupation of the nuclear power plant grounds, uh, Howard Zinn was over there in the next tent in 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 the in the story, uh, which is true. He was there. Um, and so, and he testified at a trial 
that Ray, the fictional Ray, attended an actual trial that happened when uh, a man named Sam, Sam Lovejoy knocked a tower down that was a weather tower that the nuclear industry had put up. So it was an act of eco-sabotage, if you will, but it was an act to draw attention to the harms of nuclear power. He went to trial and Professor Howard Zinn came and testified about the importance of the traditions of nonviolence and nonviolent civil disobedience in changing harmful laws and practices. So Howard Zinn makes his appearance a couple points in the story. Um, and, and his kind of, he sparks in Ray that interest in history. So Ray reads his history of SNCC and becomes kind of an, a history nerd, social movement history nerd as a result of reading Howard Zinn. Mm. Let's talk about Ray and her journey to Central America, and this is pretty much around 1986, I believe. Um, and here you begin to see her, um, I guess, maybe influenced by the death of the four Roman Catholic nuns in 1980, also the assassination of Archbishop Oscar Romero. Talk about that Central America chapter of race life and also the importance of Central America on the very progressive movement here in the United States. Yeah, I think some of some of your listeners who 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 were around then will recall that during the 1980s you had, uh, <clears throat> well, 1979 you had the Nicaraguan Revolution, the Sandinista Revolution, overthrowing uh, the Somoza government, um, and the United States once Reagan comes into power, backing a mercenary you know counterforce, the Contras. You had the U.S. providing weapons to uh, an authoritarian government in El Salvador and Guatemala as well. So people, activists in the United States were kind of waking up to U.S. role, the U.S. role in Central America and engaged in solidarity activity. And, and Ray was part of that. And at a certain point in 1986, she says, well, I'm working on issues around El Salvador and Nicaragua, but I've never traveled uh, outside the United States. I don't speak Spanish. And so like a lot of people, she went to learn Spanish and she went to do volunteer work. You know, thousands of people went to Nicaragua uh, as part of friendship brigades, helping pick coffee, pick cotton. Um, and in her case, she also went to El Salvador and worked as a volunteer in a refugee camp uh, during the Civil War. So there was a lot of internal displacement. It was very, you know, she may have been away from home for about six months, but it was deeply formative for her and for me and for lots of people in that period because we hadn't been south of the border. We didn't really understand U.S. foreign policy in, the, in, in a kind of visceral way that you do when you travel in those regions. You see the impact of the United States historically. Um the U.S. propped up a dictatorship in Nicaragua for decades, and then there's a revolution. Uh, so I think it was very formative for a lot of people, and it helped develop a critical perspective about U.S. power in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. was backing the wrong side, uh, backing authoritarian governments and military authoritarian governments. So um, that was very, very important for Ray. And she, she never traveled again like a lot of people didn't, didn't have the space or capacity in her life, but she never forgets mm -hmm. that divide between Mexico, the U.S., and Central America. Well, let's move from Ray back to Chuck Collins, okay, and um, ask you about some questions that um, Ray's not here to discuss, but we can see some changes. So the two questions I would ask you would be, one, Look at the situation in Nicaragua today with Daniel Taylor and his wife Rosario, where it seems as if, for example, um, the hope that we saw in Nicaragua, that's gone. Um, so that would be one thing. And then looking at your concern about climate change, looking at how climate change is affecting countries like Guatemala, um, you know, where you have just people being displaced. So talk about that um, and then maybe throw in just for... <laughs> For, um, ownership of land, um, like say in the places like Honduras, where you know people are are pushed off the land, or, or even I know some of the work that that Rob and John Cavana are doing in terms of you know the mining situation. I, I say all of that because what happens is that if we go back and look at 
Central America after Ray, we see new questions being raised. But I want to tie those new questions to your research and your activism today. Well, I think there's no question that, you know, Nicaragua has taken a, a very negative turn that the hope of, you know, the Sandinistas, I mean, today, if you go to Nicaragua, the Sandinistas are considered kind of like authoritarian thugs, you know, Caudillos, kind of like we thought of Somoza. In fact, people even say, oh, yeah, Somoza wasn't so bad compared to Danielle, you know, and you're like, oh, no. Um, so, and in some ways, there's a way in which U.S. social movements moved on and didn't stay engaged in the way. I mean, I think my colleague at IPS, Phyllis Bennis, you know, I think we've we've tried to like, how do you keep an internationalist perspective? Uh, and people are obviously engaged very much about Gaza and thinking about Palestine, the Middle East right now. But in terms of Latin America and Central America and Mexico, there aren't the strong connections uh, across social movements that, that there were in the 80s and 90s, or we need to strengthen whatever connections are there. And there's so much to be, as you acknowledge, there's so much to pay attention to here. There's the the injustices, the role of the United States in that region continues to be negative for the most part. Um, in fact, I just saw this morning that U.S. mining companies are suing the, the government of Mexico over Mexico trying to protect their seabeds, you know, and U.S. mining companies continue to want to, Canadian and U.S. mining companies, I should emphasize, are really bad actors in these regions, um, acting like old-time imperial forces, really. Um, so, so uh, you know, and I think adding in climate change, we're seeing, you know, uh, huge numbers of climate refugees, people from Honduras whose lands have become less habitable, their agricultural systems have been damaged by hurricanes and salinization of crops. And, you know, so some of the people showing up at the border are moving because of climate disruption. Uh, and we're going to see many, many more migrants. Well, let's talk within, about that. Let's yeah. talk about that because that's very important. You know, um, Chuck Collins isn't running for president this year, but, you know, immigration is, is an issue that always comes up. But it seems as if it's people coming across the border. It's like oh, people bringing drugs. But when I look at your work and what you were just saying, it's serious issues, climate change. You know, people may not want to come to the United States, but they're being forced to come to the United States because of what's happening in their homes in Guatemala or El Salvador. Yeah, most people in the world want to stay put and 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 thrive where they are. And, but if your land has been degraded, uh, and if it's either flooded or it's in a serious drought uh, and you're not able to provide for yourself, then you're going to migrate. And we're going to see this internally within the United States. There are going to be regions that are going to become less habitable. Um, and there are going to be places where, you know, you can well, still well, grow food. Right. Right. When, when you say that, I think the, the other thing, and this gets into language but, and also definitions, we're also going to have to be able to determine you know, the difference between migrants and refugees. Yeah. One of the things that in the novel is in the future fiction, I talk about regions where there are going to be lots more visitors globally, refugees or migrants or whatever we call them. They're basically, the, their, their homes are no longer habitable. They have no other option. Uh, or coming from the U.S. South to the North, I think it's going to be harder to live in the U.S. South. I think it's going to be the summers are going to get hotter. It's going to be hotter, more expensive and harder to maintain air conditioning, which is what makes certain areas habitable. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> there are going to be serious droughts or kind of disruptive weather events that are going to harm food systems. So I think we know all across the globe, you know, a f there's an estimate from, from the UN that, you know, a fifth of the world's population will be forced to migrate because of climate disruption in the next couple of years. So that's a lot of people on the move. And that's a lot of communities saying, well, how do we absorb and welcome new people? And how do we absorb people into our communities and provide livelihoods so they can, they, they, they too can thrive. Hmm. Um, so, and we don't always know where, you know, if your community is going to be the one to welcome people or you're going to be the one that's going to be displaced. So that should add some humility to our right. look at this challenge. Well, let me ask you a question that deals with uh, sort of a question about literature. Um, 
and symbolism. Uh, I'm looking at um, your title, Altar to an Erupting Sun. And then there's instance in your novel where there's a um, Potosky stones being handled and given and being placed on altars. And I was looking at whether you were drawing upon Native American culture and these stones and tied in with the sun. Am I reading too much into this? <laughs> You might be reading a little too much, Em, but the 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 the, the idea that um, in, in the case of a Petoskey stone, a Petoskey stone is very unique to the Midwest. You can only find them really in Michigan and a little bit in Ohio. So the Petoskey stone is for Ray a symbol of place. It's the literally the stone where you grew up, and she carries these stones as kind of talismans or, you know, in her pocket, and she as part of her wedding exchange with her husband, they each hold one of these Petoskey stones in their pocket. So that's just, you know, other families, you, your family may have a similar or, you know, something that connects you to place. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, there is this Native American history where this is tied in with sunbeams and the rising sun. And I'm also yes. looking at that Ray is R-A-E, but it could be R-A-Y. Right. Well, now, now you're onto it. I mean, I think that the altar is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. uh, the erupting sun could be considered climate change, and it is, you know, explosive in a sense. Uh, so those themes and building altars of remembrance is the the practice that sort of holds itself through the through the story. Um, so right, and, and then and then and then you have this character as we move towards the you know end of our show. I have a few more questions. The, the 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 character that I really felt sort of like okay well was Alex you know like okay you know hold this bag will I will I make will I, you know you know I mean I, there's a, probably a lot of people incarcerated right now like Alex because they they didn't know what was going on you know they just decided to hold a bag or drive somebody somewhere and they get caught up in this and get what six or seven years. Um, I can see why she was angry, even though, um, Chuck, when I was reading about how Alice was getting by in, in, in prison, it sounded like a little, it sounded like one of those uh, low residency <laughs> prisons. It didn't sound like the old Lorton here in Virginia. So, I, you know, it, it, you know, when I got to that thing, like, oh, this is a nice place. She, she's exercised. She's going to do some yogurt. And, and she doesn't ever seem where she would be in danger from other people who might just be upset with what she was associated with. Yeah. Yeah, just for for so Ray is is all right, Ray has sort of an adopted daughter. It's a do a young woman who she kind of treats as a daughter, but who uh, drives Ray to at the at the beginning of the book she drives Ray to the site where she engages in this act of of assassination and serves prison. You know, serves six years in prison for essentially you know a, a providing a ride to her friend. Um, you know, I, I actually talked to, there, there's a real person named Kath, Catherine Ann Power who drove a, a car as part of a bank heist in Boston in 1972 and was uh, where a Boston police officer was murdered, not by her, but by somebody who was part of this group. And she went underground and she eventually turned herself in and served six years in prison. So she was kind of my... <laughs> my prison consultant, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's true that they were not, they were in a women's prison and it wasn't a maximum security prison. Uh, and that there was a, a, a sort of humane quality to some of the so, aspects uh, of a life Mar there. A Martha Stewart residency. <laughs> it was a Martha Stewart residency, exactly. Yeah, no. But Kathy Ann Power wrote a terrific memoir called Surrender, mm -hmm. where she tells the story of her, uh, you know, again, being charged with a crime that, she was she was sort of being held responsible for something because the other people couldn't be found. And in this case, Ray is gone. And she's the only person that get, can be punished. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, she she is in a sense paying the price, the sins of her parents is, is sort of the, the moment that, she, you know, Ray's action has consequences and it has really harmful negative consequences for her adopted daughter, Alex. And you also have um, in your novel where I think Alice comes up for parole, where she's dealing in the room with the courthouse with the 
family of people that she she killed and 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 you know you think about um you know you could talk to the oil, the oil barons but you also have some i would call innocents who are also killed that's right and that's part of the complexity of this is uh not only is the ceo of the oil company killed but a couple of his family members are so then it makes it even more shocking and harmful and upsetting and you're talking about you know so when alex goes to her parole hearing she's confronting face-to-face -face members of the family who've lost family members because of Ray's act. And again, that was Kathy Powers' experience as she came up for parole. The, the family of police officer uh, Schroeder would show up at her parole hearings. And, and at one point she said, I withdraw my appeal for parole. You know, mm -hmm. she, she understood the family was not ready and, and was still holding her personally responsible, still do, and uh, did not want her out. Well, you know, um, if, if this was a book we were discussing in a group, like a book club, um, the question would be, would if Ray was not terminally ill, would she commit this? Would the act be the same? I think I would encourage people to read this book in a book club and have those discussions, because I think it invites the question of what, you know, if would you consider such an action? And if not, what? And at the very end of the novel, Alex kind of at a memorial service says, you know, what Ray did was wrong. But what Ray would say is, what bold action are you called to take in defense of Earth in this moment? What bold action are you, are you going to go block a doorway? You know, Malvina Reynolds, you're going to block a doorway? Are you going to um, engage in eco-sabotage and stop that pipeline from being built? Uh, what are you called to do? Mm. And nobody be a bystander. And I think that's the the invitation mm. of Alter to an Erupting Sun. What well, you, what are you well, called to do? Well, you know, the, the, the frightening thing, and we're getting this probably be the last question I can ask you, Chuck, um, is the fact that the oil baron, um, and this was brought out, that the people in the oil company knew what they were doing. It wasn't like you know, they they knew what they were doing. Uh, it's sort of like Fox News, you know, saying, you, you know, but you still decide to put out the false information because you're making money. Is that the big crime? Yeah, I think that I think what at the end of her life, Ray is reading the kind of what we're seeing now, which is the oil industry, the Shell and Exxons of the world knew the harms caused and that there are individuals who are responsible. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of a rap, which is, look, we're all responsible for climate change. Ethelbert, you, did you drive today or did you take the metro? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to drive, Chuck. So I'm, exactly, I'm, I'm free yeah. of guilt. <laughs> exactly. So, so your your culpability. I'm, I'm is free lower. of guilt. <laughs> yeah. Well, but there's maybe some other way in which you, right. you know, burned more energy than you had to today, or whatever, you know. And and what Ray would say is, okay, yeah, especially those of us who live in the United States, we who have higher levels of consumption, we're, we have a responsibility. But there are these leaders, there are in people inside these companies that have known for decades, and they use the power of the fossil fuel industry to block alternatives. The reason you can't go out and buy an inexpensive local, you know, electric car is because the fossil fuel industry blocked mm. rising emissions. You know, so she's really pointing to the power dynamics okay of the power of the fossil fuel industry and saying they should be held responsible okay well you well you chuck Collins, you chuck Collins have written a very powerful novel and that's your message and i want to thank you for being my guest on the margin today my guest today has been chuck collins he's the author of alter to erupting sun a book that is published by green writers press located in vermont my name is ethelbert miller the show's on the margin the station's wpfw 89.3 fm
CD Enterprises presents Grammy Award-winning jazz singer and songwriter Gregory Porter live in concert February 25th at the theater at MGM National Harbor. Tickets are available now at mgmnationalharbor.com. Don't miss this generation's most influential jazz sensation, Gregory Porter, live. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Scott Heron said, The revolution will not be televised, and yet we've seen oppression, suffering, and resistance streamed in real time across this country and around the world, from Palestine to D.C. In times like these, it's imperative to have a station like WPFW that centers justice, reflects hope, and fosters solidarity throughout our music and public affairs programming. From February 4th through the 24th, we offer you the opportunity to partner with us in this critical work of liberation by donating during our winter pledge drive and ensuring that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. WPFW, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. WPFW presents Jazz at 100 2024, a sonic centennial tribute to those artists turning 100 years old in 2024 and one that will surely become an annual broadcast. On February 2nd, from 5 a.m. until midnight, we'll celebrate the music of Max Roach, Marshall Allen, J.J. Johnson, Sarah Vaughn, Blossom Deary, Armando Peraza, Lucky Thompson, Louis Belson, Dinah Washington, Bud Powell, Paul Desmond, DC's own Charlie Rouse, adopted DC native son and my father, Sonny Stitt, and many others. That's Jazz at 100 2024, February 2nd, 5 a.m. until midnight, right here on WPFW, your station for jazz and justice, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Brother Jamil here informing you about the D.C. Black History Celebration Committee's annual Black History Month kickoff on Saturday, February 3rd from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. at Westminster, D.C.'s Jazz Church. The keynote speaker is none other than Professor Tom Porter on the role of black artists in the movement for justice and peace. For details, call Chuck Hicks at 202-421-8608. That's 202-421-8608. Or email History at yahoo.com. The event is free and open to the public. Westminster Church is located at 400 I Street Southwest in D.C. Again, the date is Saturday, February 3rd, from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. This is author and activist Miko Pellet, and I'm inviting you to join me for the Miko Pellet Hour, beginning on Tuesday, November 14th, from 7 to 8 p.m. We're going to discuss all things Palestine, and beyond. That's the Miko Pellet Hour, beginning Tuesday, November 14th at 7 p.m. on WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. The best in live music entertainment is coming to Bethesda Theater. Celebrate legend Bob Marley at the annual One Love Birthday Bash featuring popular reggae band I and I Rhythm on Saturday, February 3rd at 8 p.m. Celebrate more love at the Quiet Storm Valentine Celebration featuring live performances of classic love songs on Saturday, February 10th at 8 p.m. Peebo Bryson on January 26th and 27th. Bob Marley, the birthday bash on February 3rd, and Quiet Storm Valentine celebration on February 10th. 
More info and tickets at BethesdaTheater.com. WPFW is a proud media partner with Bethesda Theater.